just to give you uh, a heads up, we're taking a short pause on our Coexist series. And we're going to jump into, back into that in a few weeks. But we're going to take a few weeks to do our core. And we're going to talk about who we are as a church. Three key things. Um, and the first is our gospel centrality this morning. The day is forever imprinted in my mind. October 3rd, 1995, I will never forget it. I was actually in the fifth grade. It was a beautiful day. Uh, I remember the day so well because I was on the asphalt parking lot slash playground at Kennard Classical Junior Academy Elementary School in St. Louis, Missouri. That's a mouthful. I was at my school on the playground enjoying a good time. Having fun, jumping rope, messing with girls, you know, the typical stuff. And all of a sudden, from the second floor window, Mrs. P.A., Opened the second floor window. She leaned outside of the window and she yelled, Not guilty! And all of us kids went crazy. Although I didn't, I don't know that we knew what we were going crazy for. We went crazy. We, we were celebrating. Guess what it was? It was the O.J. Simpson verdict. O.J was not guilty, and here we are, elementary kids, celebrating. Why? We had no clue. (laughs) O.J., you know the story. Uh, He was accused of murdering Ronald Goldman and his then-wife, Nicole. Um, Honestly, I think O.J. was guilty. I'm going to just be honest. All the white people just got real. You know. Like, thank goodness. <laughs> I do. I do. I, I, I think OJ was guilty. But get this. I wonder what it felt like for OJ to sit in that courtroom at the defendant's stand and hear the words, not guilty. I know what it must have felt like for the victim's parents. Probably a crushing blow for them to hear those words. But for OJ, what do we remember? We remember the white Bronco. Do you know that 150 million people watched this verdict go down? National television. All to hear the words, not Guilty. Here is a man who, in my opinion, probably had a substantial amount of guilt. And he probably should have paid a heavy penalty for his actions. He sat in that courtroom at the defendant's stand and he heard the words, Not guilty. And I think what we're going to see this morning in this text is the exact same thing. We see a woman who has struggled in her life and she's been caught up in sin. And Jesus says to her, woman, not guilty. The Mosaic Law 
said that she should have faced punishment. And what she heard from the mouth of Jesus was not guilty. And let me tell you this morning, before you turn up your nose at the OJs and the adulterous woman, women in the world, what about your own sin? What about your own wicked heart? This morning, I want to show us that we should be a gospel-centered church. Let me give you the main ideas of where we're going this morning. First, we'll see that the gospel-centered church is more concerned with people rather than issues. Secondly, we'll see that the gospel-centered church understands the ultimate goal is to help the foulest and the broken understand and accept Jesus. And lastly, we'll see that the gospel-centered church is a place of truth and grace. But before we go to work, let's, let's pray together. Father... Would you really just open our eyes, would you open our ears to what you want to do, what you would like to say this morning? Would you draw us closer to you through this time? Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way. Lord, you have not promised to bless my words, but you've promised to bless yours. And that your word would not return void. So God, would you bless your word this morning? We need you to do so. I pray, Lord, that you would allow me to decrease, that you may increase this morning. Have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I I love the Gospel of John. Um, When I was in seminary, we began um, translating... In Greek class with the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of John reads very simply. So if you're asking yourself, man, where can I start in regular Bible reading? I would recommend that you start with the Gospel of John. Primarily we see three main things in John's Gospel. We see what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and how people respond to Jesus. We see what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and how people respond to Jesus. In John's Gospel, the task is literally to convince those that are having a hard time to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So if you struggle with your faith... Man, just read the the Gospel of John over and over again. That's the reason that you see all of these I am statements in John's Gospel. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Jesus makes his message very clear. You and I have to look no further. He is the one that we need. He's the light of the world. He's the good shepherd. See, our passage is smashed between Jesus saying in John 9, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me just pause here and say, are you thirsty this morning? 
Are you walking in darkness this morning? Do you, do you want to experience some light in your life? John would say, it is Jesus that you need. It is Jesus the Christ. The one who lived a perfect life. The one who died the death that you and I should have died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and he rose again on the third day. If you are thirsty this morning, John would say, Jesus is what you need. He's the one that you've been looking for. So you know the scene. Jesus is in the temple and he's got a crowd there. And they are listening to him teach. This happens over and over again in Jesus' ministry. And then these religious experts, they come and they want to test Jesus. They want to try him. The scribes and the Pharisees. And they basically drag this woman into the middle of this entire crowd so that all the attention is focused on her. And they place her in front of Jesus. And this woman has literally been caught in the act of adultery. Just imagine what that would be like. And many of us have done some terrible things in our life. Many of us have done things in our lives that nobody even knows about. Imagine what it would be like for all of your business to be put on display. That's what this woman is going through. So we should notice that the gospel-centered church is more concerned with people than issues. The gospel-centered church is more concerned with people than issues. The Pharisees and the scribes, they drag this woman in the center of the crowd of people, making her the center of attention. And she was caught in the act of the adultery, and I can just imagine what this woman looks like. She's probably half-dressed. She's probably got tears coming down her face. Her hair is probably all over her head. She's been caught in the act of adultery. They've caught her red-handed. There's an angry mob of men that apprehend her. And I can imagine that these men are spewing hate at this woman. They're they're, they're saying things that are extremely vulgar to this woman. Yelling at her as they're dragging her along to basically use her to get at Jesus. And you and I need to know this morning that this story is not so much to the scribes and Pharisees in their perspective. The story is not about this woman, but it's about attacking, attacking the credibility of Jesus. So what they do, a woman at her lowest of low, they take this woman and they use her to attack Jesus' Jesus's credibility. This isn't about this woman's sin to them. It's about Jesus. He's taking the attention off of them. They're losing popularity. They are the ones who are supposed to be the teachers in the synagogues. They are experts in the law. And Jesus is taking the attention off of them. And so they drag him. They drag her and she's being exposed. 
And these men are more concerned with condemning Jesus and outing Him in front of the crowd than they are with this woman. You need to know that the scribes and the Pharisees, they're experts in the law. They memorize the first five books of the Bible. Let's just say they know their Bibles like the back of their hands. They know them very well. And they are the religious leaders of the day. Listen to what they say in verse 4. Teacher, hear the sarcasm. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? The scribes and the Pharisees, they're pointing to Old Testament passages. One of them being Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. Let me show you this. It says this. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And in Deuteronomy 22.22 says this, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Interesting enough, they just have the woman. Where's the guy? Did he run? Is he among the crowd? I want to show you that this is not about this woman's sin. This is about attacking the credibility of Jesus to them. And how many of us do the same thing when people are broken in their sin? How many of us hurl people in their sin and their brokenness we, we push them away from the church by the things that we say about their sin. How many of us do that? I want to tell you this morning, if we want to be a gospel-centered church, we need to be people of compassion. That's not what the scribes and the Pharisees are displaying here. Their whole goal is to discredit Jesus. So they sacrificed this woman, drowning in her own sin. This is how the church treats folk. All too often, folk that come to church regularly, read our Bibles consistently, and then when we have somebody who is drowning in their own sin, we spew hate at them. We act like scribes and Pharisees so often when we're supposed to be Christ followers. And I think what what John's gospel is getting at here is to the believers, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees. When folk come into the house of God, they should be they should be okay to mourn over their own sin without you coming down on them. They should be loved with compassion like you and I were loved. See, if you and I are going to love this city well, that has to happen. If you and I are going to love this city well, We're going to have to put our politics aside. We have to put our blackness or our whiteness aside. We have to share compassion, share the mercy of Christ with others. We have got to value people over issues. Are you hearing me this morning? Remember the story of Hosea? 
in Hosea chapter 1, Hosea was given the task of literally acting out God's love for his people. Hosea was called to, to marry a harlot, a prostitute, uh, a woman uh, uh, of the streets. He was called to, to marry her. And he knew what would happen according to the word of the Lord. But God used Hosea to display the love that he has for his people. So Hosea married Gomer. And Gomer, literally, after a short time, left her husband Hosea. And she began having a relationship with another man. Gomer... Is Hosea chapter 3 enslaved to this person, becomes a slave to this person. And you know what Hosea does? He doesn't divorce her. He, he literally goes and redeems her. He buys her back. God put that story in the Old Testament to display His great love for us who have prostituted ourselves in rebellion against God. God says, I love you enough to send my son Jesus. I cared about you more than I did the law. I loved you. So I sent my son Jesus, even in light of the law, to love you enough to draw you to myself. I've got to ask you, do you have some gomers in your life? Do you have some folk in your life who could care nothing about the Word of God? Do you have some folk in your life who are just in the world? Are you walking with some people who don't struggle with sin, they lavish themselves in it? Do you have some gomers in your world? If we are going to be the church, if we are going to be a gospel-centered church in Memphis, Tennessee, if we're going to be the church in West Memphis and Marion, if we are going to be the church, we got to have some gomers in our lives. we got to know some gomers to love them well and to show them Jesus Christ. What Jesus shows us all throughout his ministry is that the drug addict, the prideful person, the racist, the money-hungry person, and the person dealing with sexual sin, people entrenched in sin, they ought to know that there is rest for the weary in the house of God. And they ought not be pushed away. Not only should we be more concerned with people than issues, but secondly... The gospel-centered church understands that the ultimate goal is to help the broken understand and accept Jesus. The ultimate goal is to help the broken understand and accept Jesus. So the scribes and the Pharisees say to him, What do you say, Jesus? Then in verse 6, Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Then in verse 8, Jesus says, And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And we can't, we can speculate what Jesus wrote in the dirt. But we honestly have no clue what Jesus wrote. But whatever he wrote, it actually didn't work on them. Because Jesus, for the first time, he bent down and he's writing something in the dirt. And they're still yelling at him, saying to him, persevering, Jesus, what do you say? Jesus stands up and he says, If anyone is without sin, you throw the first stone. Then Jesus bends down again. Verses like Deuteronomy 17.7 tells us that the actual witnesses are the ones that have to throw first. But Jesus says, what Jesus is basically saying is you who are not guilty of this particular sin, go ahead and throw stones at her. If you're not guilty of adultery yourself, Jesus is not saying you ought to be a perfect person to condemn sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying be sinless before you can condemn sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the person who caught her, according to Deuteronomy 17, should be the person who throws the first stone. And you can only do that if you are not guilty of adultery yourself. You know what happens? They, they drop those stones. And they tuck their tails. And they run away. The oldest run first. Because they for sure got some sin in their life. They, they've lived a little bit. They tuck their tails. And they run. Then as the story is told, Jesus is left alone with this woman standing before him. This is beautiful to me. A woman who has experienced some trauma. She was just caught in the act of her adultery. They drag her to face Jesus. She is facing murder. And all of a sudden, just because of a few words that Jesus gives them. And you know, Jesus hasn't said anything to her yet. They drop their stones and they walk away. And it's just the two of them. (laughs) Imagine what this woman would have felt like. She is on the precipice of death. They drop the stones and run. I just would like to be a fly on the wall when Jesus is alone with this woman. You think she was thankful? You think she was honored by him? You think she was grateful that she didn't die the death of stoning? Right there in front of everybody? Yeah, she was. Jesus asked this woman, Is there anyone left to condemn you? She says a simple yet amazing response, No one, Lord. No one, Lord. The word Lord means master or ruler. Then Jesus says in verse 11, Neither do I condemn you. And that is the point here. 
The goal is to help the broken understand and to accept Jesus, not to condemn. The goal is that there would be real restoration and reconciliation happen. Jesus says, my law wasn't created to condemn you, but my law was there that you may see your deep need for me and that you may come and run to my arms like the prodigal son. In fact, we see this purpose of John's gospel in John 20, 30-31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written, the gospel of John, it is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the purpose of it all. Even in John three seventeen, John says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John says the purpose of all of this is that you and I would believe that we would have life in His name. That we would have life. Jesus did not come but to condemn, but Jesus came to save. Can I get an Amen. If we are to be a gospel-centered church in Memphis, what ought to motivate us is seeing people come to believe the reality that Jesus stood in their place for their sin, that Jesus died the death that they should have died, that Jesus was put in the grave and He rose again. To see people believe that ought to motivate us. We are going to be a gospel-centered church in Memphis, Tennessee. That's what we got to promote. That's what we've got to be about. It should motivate us to see many come to realization that He died out of love, that He was buried out of love, that He rose again, conquering sin and death out of love for many And that He is coming back one day out of love for us. Um, 2010, LeBron James makes his famous decision to take his talents to South Beach, right? But before he made that decision, he was the man in Cleveland. LeBron James had this huge uh, poster or billboard with his body on it in downtown Cleveland. If you've ever been to downtown Cleveland before LeBron James took his, his talents to South Beach, you would see this huge billboard. And it was of LeBron's staple, uh, little, his, his movement, his staple motion. He always puts powder on his hands in the game and he slaps it together and he throws up that powder. So you have a billboard of LeBron James with his hands open. There's powder up in the sky. And it reads these words. We are all witnesses. Nike says, we are all witnesses to LeBron James. And yes, he has great ability. He has some fantastic athletic ability. But that will one day go away. And what I want to tell you is that you and I in Memphis, Tennessee, in order for us to be a gospel-centered church, we've all got to be witnesses.
We've all got to be His witnesses. We've got to declare the good news that Jesus really did die in our place for our sin. We've got to be His witnesses. In our neighborhoods, in our homes, on our jobs, in the classroom, in our coffee shops, in our cleaners, we've got to be His witnesses. We are all witnesses. Why? Because the point is that we would come to saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lastly, the gospel-centered church is a place of truth and grace. Jesus says to this woman, Woman, no, I don't condemn you either. Go, and from now on, get this, sin no more. From now on, sin no more. Jesus gave this woman truth and he gave her grace. Jesus told the woman her wrong was sin. Which means she was rebelling against a holy God. And I want to hear I want you to hear me this morning. If we are to be a gospel-centered church in Memphis, Tennessee, we cannot divorce truth from grace. We have to be a place of truth. So what does that mean? We got to talk about sin. And, and we have to understand that sin is sin. Jesus doesn't just shoo this woman off. And he doesn't just say you're free to go. Uh, don't ever do it again. Slap on the wrist. Jesus says this is rebellion against a holy and a righteous God. This is sin. And you're wrong for it. You've turned your back on God. God sees sinner as his enemy apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus says, this is sin. He calls sin, sin. I love what Matt Chandler says in his book, Explicit Gospel. He says, listen to this. God sent the cross of Christ to men for belittling his name. He goes on to say that the cross of Christ exists because mankind, loved by God, created by God, set in motion by God, betrayed God and prefers his stuff to him. He nailed us, didn't he? We need the cross of Christ because we prefer the gifts of God rather than the gift giver. We need the cross of Christ because we prefer His stuff rather than Him. We put our hope in relationships. We put our hope in money. We put our hope in our education and our careers. We put our hope in every other thing when Jesus is saying, I am. I am. He nailed us. I had... um, one of my, my white friends asked me a question some time ago. And, you know, it was, you know, they are pretty serious when they came to me. It was like, man, I, you know, I really want you to be vulnerable. I, you know, I want you to be honest and open. And, but man, I, I, just, I just have a question for you. Um, why do black people always eat spaghetti 
Why do black people always eat spaghetti and fried fish together? And, you know, I thought about it. And I said, just because. Now, obviously, all black people don't eat fried fish and spaghetti together, but a lot of us do. And I said, it just goes together. It's like greens and cornbread. It's like, you know, potatoes and green beans. It's like dressing and turkey. They just go together. I need, I need to get some healthy stuff in there. I, um, it's like... Uh, Salad and uh, what do y'all like? No, I'm just joking. I'm joking. I said they just go together. And what John's gospel is saying to us is you cannot remove truth from grace. They just go together. They work hand in hand. You gotta talk about sin. You gotta talk about the truth of the gospel. And you gotta marinate it with, with grace. They just go together. It's just how it is. And if we are going to be a gospel centered church, there has got to be a healthy marriage between truth and grace. We can't divorce one from another. In the same way that O.J. was found guilty, you and I, by the work of Christ, we did some heinous things. And not only have we done some heinous things, but we were born into sin. That, which means all of us, every part of us, is tainted with sin. David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity. All of us have sin. Nobody gets out of it. Romans 3 says, None are righteous, not even one. Nobody seeks after God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means for me this morning is I am on the same playing field with everybody else. I need Jesus. And I want to tell you, if we're going to be a gospel-centered church in Memphis, Tennessee, we have got to understand those realities and we've got to give it away, give it away, give it away. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you didn't just leave us in our sin, but you sent a remedy, a solution. You sent a cure in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you thought enough of us to send a cure for our sin. And Lord, I know that there are some here that struggle with understanding and even believing that you are who you say you are and that you've done what you said you've done. God, I can't convince them. Richard can't convince them. Holy Spirit, would you convince of your work? Would you convince of your authority? Would you convince of your deity? 
Would you convince this morning, God? We can't do it on our own. Lord, I pray for our church. We want to be centered on the gospel, God. And I pray for every person here this morning. Would you send us out to be mouthpieces for you this morning? Help us, God, to believe the gospel so much that we give it away to others in this city. Lord, help us not just to walk it out, but help us to speak it out of our mouths. Lord, I pray that as you nudge us by your Spirit, that we would be obedient to you, and that we would give the gospel away, that we would give the gospel away, that we would give it away. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.